Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. My guest today, Lauren Tarshis, remembers the responsibilities that fell to her on March 11, 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic was declared and schools around the country began to shift to virtual learning. Lauren is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Scholastic Classroom Magazines. The magazines reach more than 25 million students and their teachers and have been a staple in classrooms for more than a century. Lauren will tell us how her team of writers, editors, designers, video producers, and IT experts helped support teachers and keep students engaged and learning this past year, even when classrooms were empty. Lauren wears many hats at Scholastic. You may know her as the author of the best-selling I Survived, a series that recounts terrifying and thrilling stories from history through the eyes of a child who lived to tell the tale. Later, I'll talk with Scholastic Kid reporter Sirus Pazdar. Sirus is a member of Scholastic Kids Press, a team of 45 young journalists from around the world who help us deliver news for kids by kids. First, here is Lauren Tarshis. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back to the program. Hello, Suzanne. I love being with you, as you know. Ditto. My first question for you is, could you tell us about Scholastic Classroom Magazines? How long have they been around and what is their purpose? Well, 100 years ago, Maurice Robinson, known as Robbie, also known as the father of Dick Robinson, our our current CEO, had an idea that children, in order to be in a democracy, needed to learn to become clear thinkers. They needed facts. And he founded a single magazine called The Scholastic for high school students. And from that seed is the seed from which all of Scholastic grew the Scholastic Classroom Magazine Division, which is now part of the Education Solutions Division, is now that single magazine is 25 different resources that span from pre-K all the way through high school that cross into all the different content areas. The centering mission remains to help children understand their world and themselves, to build knowledge and inspiration. We're no longer just print magazines. Each magazine is this beautiful blended digital resource that uses our original stories to take children on learning journeys through our stories, video, many different types of teaching resources. Our real mission is in addition to that founding mission to help children have facts and clear thinking skills. It's also really to empower them, inspire them, connect them to each other. Certainly now over this past year to bring joy for them into their lives and for their teachers as well. Tell us about your specific role on the magazines. I've been at the company for decades, always in this division. I've done many different things, but now I oversee the group. What's wonderful about that is it enables me really to see the commonalities even between our pre-K magazine that might be 
featuring an article about pumpkins or hand washing and our high school magazine that's a partnership with the New York Times, New York Times Upfront, which is writing about North Korea or the Supreme Court. But of course, how all of these resources and the people who work on them are, are very much united in that vision and that mission that we share. This year has been unlike any other, as we know. How have your editors responded to the changing needs of students and teachers? It has been an incredible, incredible experience, Suzanne, because we are deeply connected with our teachers. We have about 15 million children reading our magazines. And of course, you know, I don't know what the math is, but it's, it's a vast number of educators all over America. So we've, we're very much on the front lines with teachers. We're used in classrooms and our customers are our educators, our teachers. They're the ones that um, are in touch with us. And very often they're the ones who are purchasing our resources. So we are always acutely aware of their needs, which are often fast changing and never have those needs been more upended than they were this year as they had to transfer to remote, juggle, just massive technology challenges, often their own family challenges. It was a wild. So we were very fortunate because our magazines really do work beautifully on any device, even a phone. We quickly, we just, and we are able to pivot very rapidly in our group because that's what we do. So we were able to, within weeks, really transform many of our resources. We got much more into Google slideshows. We wanted teachers to be able to instantly turn our stories into new types of lessons, not just whole group, small group in the classroom, but at home with families. We wanted to ensure we, we rapidly were able to improve our even our technology access to make sure that parents in a parking lot, which is where a lot of people were at that time, in a parking lot with a hotspot, could do everything that a child at a desk in a beautiful home office could do. We've been in constant innovation mode. It's been inspiring. It's been exhausting. But most of us really do feel that for all of us in the group, it's, you know, our 150 odd people who, who work in the group. It's been fortifying to be doing that work. That's absolutely amazing. As you suggested, children's experiences have varied widely this past year. But I wondered if teachers are sounding common themes about learning during the pandemic. I think it's all over the place. I think that there is a general just acceptance that this year, we don't like to use the word learning loss because that somehow suggests that the loss was a result of anything specific that happened in the educational realm. It did not. I think teachers overall were just truly extraordinary in trying to keep children supported and feeling safe. I think that the, that many teachers happily began to understand that their mere presence in their children's lives, seeing their faces on Zoom or even calling them on the phone in the, in the early days where a lot of kids didn't have access, was just enormously, was the most important thing. So now I think, and I think that, that there were some, the anxiety and the fear that they weren't doing enough. They weren't, oh my gosh, it's March and we're home and our, our tests are coming up in May or April. What are we going to do? I think that for many, and I, I hope most was, you know, we watched this transformation happen because we were constantly in classrooms with, with teachers on their Zooms and, and with them. But we did see this gradual acceptance of the reality and the importance of the social emotional piece 
And I think now as we're looking up and people are vaccinated and schools are looking to the fall, the summer really first, I think teachers and districts are going to be using the summer in new ways. There, you know, the term learning acceleration, or there's all sorts of new jargon that's erupting to capture what is what kids need right now. So I think that we we have to accept that this was, I don't want to call it a lost year because I think that teachers, there are, we were in a in classroom a while, maybe about a month ago, this amazing educator in upstate New York, Tessa, and she said there was this wonderful group of children. They were fifth graders. They used StoryWorks, all remote. And you could feel the connection between them and the way they were communicating and the questions they were asking us about our stories and how they were chiming in with each other. And she said, we have never met each other in person, but I feel closer to these children than any class that I've ever had before. And we were all just like, we were so choked up because you saw they have been going through this this historic experience together. They will never forget. So I think when all is said and done, hopefully educators and children will look back on this time, not in terms, I mean, obviously the, the profound losses that families have experienced are just incalculable and um, unfathomable. But for those who were fortunate enough not to lose family members or friends to the virus, who didn't lose jobs and that they weren't able to reclaim, I think that there were things that people will pull forward and look back on, not only with sorrow. Yes, there's always something to learn. One big mission of the magazines has been to help students understand the pandemic and the purpose of lockdowns and quarantining, which is something we all went through for the first time. How did you approach this task? That's such a great question, Suzanne, because I I remember when we were in, we were preparing our back to school issues for last September. So it was, we're working on them in June and July. And I, we were really grappling. There was a divided camp between people who thought we just need to distract them. They need stories about eating bugs and super surfers off Portugal, surfing the giant waves. And we just want to delight them. (laughs) But we didn't, we came to the fact after talking to a lot of educators that they needed really, we wanted to validate their experience. So we really worked hard to create stories across the board to acknowledge the experience that they're going through to make them feel safe to help them begin to frame this as not just terrifying and confusing, but also a shared experience, one that we might even learn from. There were many things we chose not to write about, even at the high school level, because that information is available elsewhere. Our goal was to have our usual very relevant stories, to give teachers tools. We also we provided a lot of tools for in our science magazines and our news magazines to help educators talk about this in the classroom in ways that were honest, but weren't going to be too scary to frame it within historical context. Let's have an article about the influenza pandemic so that we can see that this happened before. Interesting. What did we learn? Hmm, Good to know. So I think that that was really the right decision and we continue to do that. And now we're planning to, uh, we're really already looking forward to back to school next year. What will be what kind of stories will we be, will we be um, wanting to, kids are going to be, you know, it's a whole, I think they're going to be a host of other challenges and opportunities that educators are going to need help with as kids begin, hopefully to resume a more normal cadence. Right. As much hope as we have, we really don't know what the picture is going to be. Exactly. No, we do not. And it'll be different in different places, obviously, right? Yes, of course. 
Now, one of the topics you also covered beautifully was the polio epidemic. You wrote a little bit about your family's experiences. I wondered if you could tell us about that story and what inspired it. I'm very in touch with a lot of teachers through the course of my workday, but also on Twitter. And I've made just, I love the community there. It's really, for me, I, I've, all of the, my community is, is educators and author, maybe some authors, and but it's mainly educators and we're all talking about the same thing. So I asked them, I said, you know, I keep thinking about the, gram, the stories my grandmother would tell me about the polio outbreaks. And I'm just so struck by the similarities. My cousin Dolly, who was the flower girl in my, my grandmother's wedding, was an object of fascination for me when I was growing up because there was her beautiful picture. She looked like Judy Garland, you know, this little girl in a dress. But my grandmother would say under that dress, she had her braces, her polio braces, and she went down the aisle with her crutches. So I really just kept turning back to that, to those stories. And surprisingly, they didn't scare me personally. They made me feel a little more hopeful, like, okay, there's a lot of similarities. And then I started Googling around and I found this truly wild picture just on getting images from 1937. It was a group of children, 1937 Chicago, and it was during a polio outbreak. And they were sitting in a living room, obviously at home. One had a geography book open, the other had a notebook. And there was a kid with rather wild hair with his ear against a radio. And I learned that kids did remote schooling during the polio outbreaks when schools would close. And then I started to dig more and I found newspapers, San Antonio, 1946, schools closed, two more polio cases. So the stories my grandmother would tell me about how terrifying it was when there would suddenly, there would be a rumor, I, you know, so-and-so has polio and everything would stop. No one could go out anymore. The stores would close. My grandfather owned a little dusty little store. He would have to shut the store. My grandmother, would, great-grandmother would get terrified. And so I wrote on Twitter, I said, I, I started sharing some of these observations and I shared that polio picture and I got, I don't know, it was like 10,000 people, some crazy number. So I asked the teachers, I said, do you think I should, well, they actually started saying, you should share this with the kids. You should write about this. So I dropped everything and wrote this article called From Fear to Hope. And it was really directly speaking to our readers, which is something else we do in the magazines. We're in conversation with them. We want to hear back from them. So I said, you know, why do we, how is it possible that when you learn about history, even something super sad, sometimes it has a surprising impact on how you look at what we're going through today. Why do I feel more hopeful somehow? And kids were very struck by this type of questioning. And again, it goes back to that framing that we were trying to help teachers accomplish this sort of positive framing of negative situation, which is so much the key to some of this social emotional learning that children do is how do we, it's not easy and we don't want to be coy or cliched about it. Like, Oh, look at the bright side, you know, it's, just, but it's, how do you start to at least plant the seeds for some of those narratives in kids' minds? Like, Oh, well, people went through this before. Hmm. And now I would say to kids, cause I, I've been sharing this with tons of kids in my class visits with StoryWorks and, and elsewhere. And I always say, have you heard of polio? No, no, no. What's that? What's that? Wow. And I say, well, um, and then I tell them and I say, and you don't, before I tell you, I just want to say, you don't have to worry about polio because when you were a little baby, a doctor or nurse put a little drop of something on your tongue and that was your polio vaccine. And that's why you don't have to think about it anymore. And then kids will say, do you think that'll be like COVID? And I'll say, yeah, you know what? Your grandchildren are going to want you to come to their social studies class and tell this <laughs> incredible story. Like my grandmother used to tell me, they're going to be fascinated. They're going to say, your teachers did what? And you had to do, you had to wear it, what? And what is Zoom? And, you know, it helps, I think, in many cases, kids not to think, oh, it's, this is just fine. 
but at least to have a broader context to process this. And I love that it's from fear to hope. (laughs) Could you read aloud an excerpt for our listeners to give them a flavor for your story? Oh, yes, I can. I actually pulled it. I will read you. So I have pictures, what I, the, the article has, and we can share, we'll share this with people, Suzanne, so people can use it. And I did share it on Twitter, but there's just, first of all, the visual, just looking at the visuals of the art, you know, in the article that we were able to find of children wearing masks. Also, we have the whole part that we're, how, we asked them, how are the polio outbreaks of the, of the past, like COVID-19 outbreaks today? And we showed the newspaper headlines, schools were closed. We have a great picture of a group of kids. They just look like out of the little rascals almost standing outside of their friend's house. And there's a sign on the wall that says quarantined because of poliomyelitis, infantile paralysis. That was what, you know, the official name of polio. And they can't go in because their friend was exposed to polio. They have to wait till the quarantine's over, just like so many kids today have had that experience of, oh no, so-and-so is under lockdown. And then of course we shared that remote learning picture. But I will just read you, I'll just read you the beginning of it because it, it talks about, I mean, it, it really, I start out by saying, I wish you would know my grandmother, Jenny Ross. She was warm and funny and I know you would have loved her. She definitely would have loved you because she loved everyone. Born in 1920, she lived a long life. It was mostly happy, but very difficult. Often she would tell me stories of her childhood as we paged through her photo albums. And I talk a little bit about Dolly and then how she had one day told me under that, under those desks, under that dress, Dolly's little legs were covered with metal braces. The braces bound tightly to her legs with leather straps, kept her stable so she could stand. At my grandmother's wedding, she made her way down the aisle with slow halting steps with the help of wooden crutches. And then I explained how they grew up during this time when things were very hopeful for them. They had escaped from Russia where they were narrowly escaped death because of anti-Semitism and how they moved to Chester, Pennsylvania, where things were so hopeful. And my, my, grand, my great-grandfather, my grandmother always boasted that her father was the first Jewish police, police captain in Chester, Pennsylvania. I mean, you'd have thought he was like the first man to the moon. She was so proud, but there was so much hope. But lurking in the background were these terrible diseases, not just polio, but measles, mumps, tetanus, Every story my grandmother told me was like some horrific accident (laughs) where someone like disappeared to the hospital or never came back. But polio really was the most feared. And that's where I started to see the connections between today and then, because of course there are other things we have to worry about, not just COVID right today, but now that, that just COVID has, has taken on this terrible term. So at the very end of the story, after I take them through the the pandemic, This is where I say, you know, I bring up the similarities and then I say, but my grandmother's stories of polio give me hope. We conquered polio and this gives me confidence that we will conquer COVID-19. While I was working on this story, the first vaccines against COVID-19 were being approved. I will always have memories of this remarkable time we are living through. And of course, so will you. Perhaps one day you will pass your stories on to your grandchildren with lessons that will fill their hearts with hope. And then we invite kids to write about this. And we've gotten, Suzanne, we've gotten such incredible stories. We encourage kids to talk to their parents and grandparents or people, they, you know, older people that are in their lives and interview them about difficult experiences or challenges that they went through. And of course, it's not just illness. And so just the experience of, of the kids 
connecting to people in this way and learning, learning things about their relatives they never knew. And then framing those as, wow, they, they went through that and look at them now. Uh, As you said, empowering them and this rapport you established with them, this conversation is so lovely. It's like a conversation rather than an article. It is. That's what so, that's what we love about what we do. Well, I should note here that you're the author of the best-selling I Survived series, and you know a bit about helping children build resilience. Well, it's, it's, it is definitely, I think I've shared on this podcast before that I've gotten a lot of emails from kids who say like, Mrs. Tarchus, why do you write about such depressing <laughs> topics? Literally, quote unquote. And it is often, it, it is looking back on these dark times, but I, I just finished writing about the Galveston hurricane. I literally handed in that I Survive book, which I've been writing during the pandemic, which was surreal. But Again, you know, this was just this, the deadliest natural disaster in American history. It happened in 1900 in this horrendous hurricane that struck Galveston and killed as many as, you know, they, people think it could have been as many as 10 to 12,000 people. Officially, it was more six to 8,000. But I mean, and there's so many survivor stories because the historical foundation there has, 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 has just collected this treasury of these incredible letters and memoirs. And once again, in those stories, it's, they're terrifying. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh. I mean, I can't even tell you, but it's like, then these, how they, you know, I, we came back and we rebuilt and we had to live over this, this hardware store, but then we rebuilt our house and I did this. And the, the priest, Father Kernan, I think it was, and the rabbi, um, Rabbi Cohen, they joined together and the black community and the white community had connection together in ways that they never had. And so you again see that, well, they're not looking back on this experience only as a tragedy. They're also in these memoirs, they're quickly segueing into the things that came out of it. So again, people are able to endure terrible losses. It takes a long time to heal. Right. One wonders here with COVID if we do come out of this with racial equality as well, what what this has opened up to us. I know, because that's the other, um, the, the incredible layer of this year, in addition to COVID, has been the, I think, in so many, in so many areas, and in, in just a, a wildly different attitude about racial justice and a commitment to, to really, to, to tackle this in a way. I think, I don't know what you think, but I really feel like there's just, there's momentum. I agree. White America is finally waking up to how entrenched racism really is and how toxic it is for everyone. I do think that sense of hope and optimism is what buoys us. And on the subject of hope, the magazines also covered the development of the polio vaccine by Jonas Salk, for example. I think that was in Scholastic News for fourth graders. And as you said, the magazines covered the killer flu of 1918. Why is it so helpful to provide historical context when students are learning about current events and the challenges we're all facing? I think that there's a few reasons. I think that in some cases, we truly can learn and build on positive lessons from the past. I think we can also learn from mistakes of the past. We can also 
and again, is just to hit that same note that we've been hitting hard through the conversation. It, I do think it's reassuring to know that people, I think nobody wants to think when, when we use the word, this is unprecedented. We've never dealt with anything COVID-19. This It's unprecedented. It's terrifying. It's like, how could this be you know, that we're <laughs> dealing with something that no one has ever dealt with? And obviously it is unprecedented in so many, in so many of the, so many ways, but we, it has, it has happened before. The influenza epidemic, that's a whole other podcast, Suzanne. You know, that is, if you read the book by John Barry, Influenza, you almost could just like copy and paste large sections and put it into a COVID book because it's the same kind of, what is this? Where does it come from? Who's, you know, how is it being spread? The fear, the terror that it it, um, brought out in people, the suspicion, suspicion against scientists. And the mask wearing as well, that was a huge controversy, wearing masks or not. Yeah, definitely. Now, when many of us think about magazines, we think about long, meaty articles. You talked about some of the beautiful photos you run. You also have videos, slideshows, a text-to-talk feature. How do these elements help teachers draw students into a story? And how do these pictures help tell the story for young people? What we try to do is really immerse our readers into the world of the story to help them not only learn the facts, obviously, and understand what happened, but really help them hear the voices of the people who who were affected or who were telling the story to also access the story in any way that works for them. I mean, that's a huge part of our mission is sort of equity and helping kids who might have just arrived in America and they don't know English very well, kids who might struggle to read or have learning challenges. Kids, just because you struggle to read does not mean that you are not deeply curious and dying to know and be in conversation. So we have so, you know, all of our magazines, you know, we have a multitude of ways for children to gain access to that story. They can listen to it. They can watch a video that previews all of the themes. So even if they can't read it, they can be in in the conversation. They can read it on different levels and the teacher can provide it on those levels in ways that children aren't necessarily aware that they're being given a lower level story. And by the way, neither will their peer sitting next to them because they look alike. I think that we, of course, reading is so critical and, and we really at Scholastic devote ourselves to reading, but I really look at it differently. Uh, I think of it as knowing how do you how do you help children know? And sometimes it is reading, but they have to learn to read. But in the meantime, while they're learning to read, how do we make sure that they are gaining the knowledge they need and a part of those really important conversations? Because I think that that's the feeling of being shut out is one that we want to really address and solve. And you help them understand the importance of civic engagement and making sure everyone's voice is heard. That is a huge part too. I think that we always in our stories, we always, even if it's about something really scary, we always end with a way for students to take action and to feel empowered so we actually really have, we call these stories, and I know that we've, we've also talked about this with you in the past of these are the idea of a words into action. What is, it's not just enough to engage a child, meaning to have them be interested. That's just step one. The idea is to take them beyond that and to inspire them to do something when they're done. And that can be as simple as thinking about it. I mean, that's an action. Boy, I really, you know, you're 
thinking about that as you're playing Roblox. You know, you're building, <laughs> I'm still thinking about that article I read about that weird fish. But then, of course, talking about it with your parents or your family, with your friends, wanting to learn more about it, going online, learning more, writing to the author, writing to wanting to get in touch with one of the people featured, and then maybe even deciding you want to organize yourself, join a cause, raise money for orangutans in Borneo, (laughs) um, (laughs) lobby to have plastic water bottles banned from your school. So many ways. And I think that to me, the learning, going back to that original message in magazines of helping children understand themselves in the world. One thing we've really learned over this century at Scholastic, Suzanne, and I know Suzanne, you know, your work with the kid, our kid reporters, our amazing Scholastic kid reporters who are such a huge part of our mission. All of us have gained in this past hundred years, a greater and greater appreciation for how powerful children can be. And if we can give them the opportunity, how much they can positively affect our world and how we can help them gain agency over their own lives, even if they're facing challenges at home or in school. So I see that that same, or it's just wonderful to reflect back on how an original mission can remain the same but can be enriched through the work over many, many decades. Wonderful, Lauren. Thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Suzanne. As Lauren mentioned, Scholastic Kid Reporters bring stories to their peers through our classroom magazines and news sites. I am their proud editor. I invited kid reporter Sihus Pazdar to join us today. Sihus, who is 12 years old, lives in New York City. He was a guest on the podcast a year ago, less than a month into the pandemic. Here's a brief clip from our conversation in April 2020. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like in New York City these days? Well, New York City is the epicenter of the outbreak in this country. So a lot of people have started to stay home now that the governor's issued everybody to stay home and the schools are now online, which is a big change. And New York is really known to be a crowded, populated city. And the streets have really, they're just really quiet now. And nobody's really outside anymore like we're used to seeing. Here again is Scholastic Kid reporter Sirhus Pazdar. Hi, Sirhus. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for having me today. It's great that you're here, Sirhus. Tell us what has changed since our conversation from last April. A lot's changed. So last April, as I recall, all the schools were fully fully virtual, for example. And now, while that's still an option, there's also a hybrid learning model where you can also come in the school building. That's changed. Uh, Lots of people are more out now, so lots of restaurants and shops are opening up. Um, Lots of people are now starting to kind of come back and visit. Lots of tourists are coming back again. So I think lots of things are slowly coming back to normal as people get vaccinated, but there's still a long journey ahead of us till things completely go to normal. In your role as a kid reporter, Sirhus, you interviewed the head of UNICEF USA about a global vaccination project 
Tell us a little bit about this effort and why it's so important. So when I interviewed Mr. Ninehouse, the CEO of UNICEF USA, he talked about this idea that no one's safe until everybody's vaccinated. And that's kind of why this initiative is so important. What COVAX is aiming to do is get people vaccinated. And lots of countries don't have the infrastructure or money so that they can vaccinate lots of their citizens. Right, so that's that idea of nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Because there's that chance that if a certain number of people aren't vaccinated, the virus can come back. But we also have a duty as world citizens, as Mr. Ninehouse explained to me, that everybody is safe from viruses and nobody gets sick. And we need to pitch in to help people who perhaps uh, don't have the money or infrastructure again so that they can, so that they can get vaccinated. That's a great lesson, Sirhus. We're all in this together and we need to act as neighbors and help one another. You also spoke with Danny Meyer, who is one of the top restaurateurs in New York City. What did he tell you about the road to recovery for the restaurant industry, which really has been battered during the pandemic? When I spoke with Mr. Meyer, we talked a lot about outdoor dining being an innovation that's become really popular during the pandemic. And lots of restaurants have set up tents and little almost buildings outside on the sidewalk so people can dine. And he thinks that that's really become important and will be something important as restaurants move forward because it's really additive to the business and the customers a restaurant can handle. And he's talked a lot about other innovations that we drew because of the pandemic, including, for example, how some restaurants have a QR code you can scan to view the menu. Yeah, everybody's rooting for the restaurant industry. <laughs> yep. How have you and your classmates been adjusting to life during the pandemic and the switch first to virtual learning and then hybrid models and all of that? Tell us what it feels like for someone who's 12 years old to be in this situation. Well, virtual learning was definitely difficult because you know, for years now, we've all learned in person. We've been able to see our classmates every day and our teachers. So it really seems odd at first you, when you think about it, learning at home from a computer. But I feel like, you know, now we're in a, a year after the virtual learning first started. So I think most people at this point have gotten used to it. It's become kind of a routinely thing. And now on occasion, we also get to go in person. That's an option that's available to everybody. And it's not the same as what in-person learning would be in, let's say, last January before the coronavirus pandemic. Now we're only seeing nine people each time we go in person because the entire class can't come. And we're wearing masks and still social distancing. So while it's great to see your classmates and teachers, it's still not the same. We know at this point that adults can get vaccinated, but Young people under the age of 16, they're still testing out vaccines for kids. What do you think it'll be like when kids can get the vaccine? That'll definitely be exciting for most kids, obviously. That definitely opens a lot of new possibilities, too. So it, hopefully that'll allow us to go to school in person every day and do lots of the activities that we couldn't do before. So playing sports, taking after-school clubs and classes. Lots of those stuff uh, stopped because of the pandemic. And hopefully when people, kids start to become vaccinated, those things can start to come back again.
That's great, Sirius. What do you think 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, people who weren't alive during this time, what do you think you would say to them about this time? How would you explain it? I would say it's definitely an interesting time. It had it had its ups and downs. Um, obviously, besides the negative aspects of the pandemic, there are many positive things. So, for example, working from home and learning from home, you were able to see your family more often, hopefully, and hang out with them more. Lots of people made had new hobbies and discoveries during the pandemic. So while there were probably more negative aspects than positive, I think it's also important to look at those positive aspects and explain those to people who weren't alive during this time. Well, thank you so much, Sihus. That's why we wanted to get your perspective. We knew you would give us a lot of hope for the future. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks so much again to Lauren Tarshis and Scholastic Kid reporter Sihus Pazdar for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about our classroom magazines and Scholastic Kids Press, go to scholastic.com podcast. If you know an aspiring journalist between the ages of 10 and 14, the application process for Kids Press is now open. You can find a link to the application form at scholastic.com podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.